kaum di muka bumi akan mendapat berkat. Lalu pergilah Abram seperti yang difirmankan Tuhan kepadanya, dan Lot pun ikut bersama-sama dengan dia. Abram berumur 75 tahun ketika ia berangkat dari Haran. Abram membawa Sarai, istrinya dan Lot anak saudaranya dan segala harta benda yang didapat mereka dan orang-orang yang diperoleh mereka di Haran. Mereka berangkat ke tanah Kanaan lalu sampai di situ. Abraham berjalan melalui negeri itu sampai ke suatu tempat dekat Sikem, yakni pohon terbantin di More. Waktu itu orang Kanaan diam di negeri itu. Ketika itu Tuhan menampakkan diri kepada Abraham dan berfirman, Aku akan memberikan negeri itu kepada keturunanmu. Maka didirikannya di situ mesbah bagi Tuhan yang telah menampakkan diri kepadanya. Uh, just to frame again what we've been doing uh, this week. You remember on Tuesday, those of you who were here, you were transported to Nairobi, to a theological college, where the talk was geared towards those coming from a pain, uh, sorry, a power and fear context. Yesterday, Claire Livo, I'm sorry, Claire Livingston, <laughs> uh, transported us to Lausanne to a Think Home weekend retreat where the target audience was predominantly people from an honour-shame environment. And today, perhaps something a little more familiar, the target audience I have in mind is a mixed-age congregation in suburban Melbourne, struggling with the pain-pleasure dynamic. So, friends, do Australians see their lives in pain-pleasure categories, maximising pleasure and minimising pain, embracing the things that bring happiness, resisting those things that don't. Are we imagining this or is something really going on? What about you? Did your parents ever say... When you were growing up, as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. (laughs) Okay, counselling for the brother over there. As long as you're happy, that's all that matters. But what if you're not happy? What if you've invested your identity in something that doesn't deliver? As one article in The Age recently put it, Our pursuit of happiness is making us more anxious than ever. Uh, The other day I was on a tram. A young adult was on the phone across from me and I listened. (laughs) Now, I'm not a stalker. I've done dubious police checks. Nothing gets me more excited in the morning than a risk assessment. But I listened to what she was saying. She was talking on uh, with earphones. Have you ever noticed how some people speak really loudly? 
And clearly, she'd been asked a question about what was important to her. And to the question about happiness, she said, this is what she literally said, I want financial freedom. What I desire, what I really want, is others to respect my thoughts and my contributions. And I need to do something that makes the world a better place. I reckon if I get those things, that'll make me happy. And I was thinking, what if you don't get those things? Or, what if you get them and you're still not happy? Was she just speaking for all millennials? Giving voice to this pleasure-pain paradigm? Or was she now echoing a wider cultural trend? And culturally, aren't, aren't questions increasingly informed with pain-pleasure categories in mind? Think same-sex marriage or ongoing discussions around assisted suicide. With same-sex marriage, the question was, how can you deny me pleasure? With assisted suicide, it is, how can you force on me a painful death? Questions of right and wrong aren't given much authority at all. What really counts is how people feel and their autonomy. Uh, Religion doesn't come into it at all. And anyway, isn't religion bad? Promotes hate. From what I can see, it hurts people. Friends, in a happiness-obsessed culture... How can Christians engage with this pleasure-pain culture? And what's it got to do with discipleship? And what's it got to do with mission? Well, as we ponder the questions of pleasure and pain, meaning and identity, we come to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 7, our passage for today. You might like to have it in front of you. Trusting in something bigger than ourselves. Trusting in something bigger than ourselves. A Christian response to a pleasure-pain culture. Firstly, trusting in something bigger than ourselves, what God said. Now, although Abram, culturally speaking, wouldn't have thought primarily in pleasure-pain categories, situationally, if you understand his context, he was on a pretty good wicket. He had land... And he had a country. He had an ethnic identity. He had the safety and security of his father's name and his household. Uh, In a world characterised at times by uncertainty, Abram was a somebody. (coughs) Within his family network and Bedouin culture, he was a somebody. A sheik of noble stock. To use our language, upwardly mobile, a somebody. And now, as we come to this passage, he's asked to risk it all. Risk becoming a nobody. Friends, imagine spending a lifetime secure in your self-understanding. This is who you are. This is where you belong. This is what you will do. 
only to be asked now, put it aside. Why would he do that? Why would he risk it all? God. God. He had an encounter with the true and living God, the God who speaks, the God who makes promises. In other words, Abram had an encounter with something bigger than himself. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation. And I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now you will know... In this sermon series we've been preaching from the book of Genesis, we talked about the Tower of Babel last week in chapter 11. See the contrast between the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 and what we've just read. Despair, confusion and hopelessness in the former. Direction and a hopeful future in the latter. The difference between what we've done, let's make a name for ourselves, and what God will do. And what is that? What will God do? It's there in the text, isn't it? Five short statements and three simple promises. I will make, I will bless, I will make, I will bless, I will curse. This bright future is something God is doing. It's his will. It's God who'll do it. Abram has a future. But it's God's gift and not the world's doing. It's all of God's grace and none of us. It's his will. It's God who'll do it. And the gift of God found in three promises to Abram, land, people and blessing. Now from our standpoint, looking back at the cross and the resurrection, they all find their yes in Jesus, all find their yes in God's gospel of grace. And looking forward, they find their fulfilment in Revelation 7, with all the nations, including you and me, gathered around God's throne. But remember, Abram knew none of this. He knew none of it. So Sarai's barrenness left Abram with a choice. Remain in his culture with all its identity-defining ties and remain, remain inconsequential or leave everything. Armed with nothing more than an uncertain future, nothing more than a promise trusting in something bigger than himself with a new identity, worshipping a new God. He trusted in something bigger than himself, what God said. 
Secondly, trusting in something bigger than ourselves, what Abram did. Abram obeys God because of his word, pure and simple. He trusted everything, people and possessions, to God and his promises, verses 4 and 5. In obedience, Abram demonstrates where his true significance and security lie. They lie in God and not the things that used to define his identity. He trusted God to provide children, even though his wife was barren. He trusted God with his possessions. He trusted God in a hostile land. He trusted God to fulfil his word and builds an altar as an expression of that trust in verse 7. Abram binds himself to God above all else. He trusted that God will provide him with lasting significance and security. Abram trusted in something bigger than himself. How? Well, firstly, he believed. Believed what God promised, not knowing that God's word through land, people and blessing would be the means of reaching all humanity through the gospel. And secondly, Abram's trust and belief in something bigger than himself turned into obedient action. He aligned himself with God's plans and purposes. He is, in fact, isn't he, the model of the true believer. The true believer with no fixed security and no fixed focus except God's word. And in the same way, we're now called to follow his example, aren't we? In the same way, we're now trusting in something bigger than ourselves as we align ourselves with the Lord Jesus. We lay aside false security and place our hope in him, which seems tenuous, but is in fact the only sure future. Well, so what? So what? In a pain-pleasure culture, what does this mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? And what does it mean for us? What does it mean for how we think about discipleship and mission? Now, of course, in our discipleship, there is a pleasure which involves the enjoyment of the good gifts of God. Yet because of the fall, with its accompanying pain and brokenness, we desperately need, don't we, God to shine his light in and through his people, shine his light in and on this pain-pleasure culture. And here we're confronted with the reality of Jesus and a possible response to this pleasure-pain dynamic. Before receiving the glory of a resurrection crown, Jesus endured a suffering cross. Jesus' answer, the Bible's answer, is to reframe pain and pleasure to reframe it with suffering and glory. And that's the path of the cross. 
And so Christian discipleship, if you think about it, critiques pain and pleasure by embracing the biblical idea of suffering and glory. It's a significant theme in the New Testament. There are many passages we could go to. One well-known one, Romans 8 and verse 17 and following. Now, if we are children, and here we see echoes of Genesis 12, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory the glory to be revealed in us. Friends, in an increasingly hostile environment, we need to encourage one another in what it means to understand and persevere in suffering, which underpins present and eternal glory. To a culture dominated by pain-pleasure dynamics... We need to reframe this narrative, not just with words, but with a demonstration of God's love. To a culture that says Christianity results in hate and Christianity results in hurt, is abusive and exploitative, we must live, Matthew 5. We must live, 1 Peter 2, live such good lives among the pagans. Though they may speak evil about us, they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Friends, as disciples, are you, are we, as we think about our lives, trusting in something bigger than ourselves? Because suffering... Before glory comes with a cost. Abraham aligned himself with God's promises, but it came with a cost. He had to rethink his entire life, his entire identity, his priorities, what he was there for and what he was there to do. He had to rethink all of it, including all the idolatry, the worship of false gods. And so must we. Here's the painful truth. Within our individualistic and materialist culture, are we in danger of capitulating to our Western idolatry and syncretism we're quick to accuse other cultures of? times I can see it in my life and I can certainly see see it in Christian communities. If we look and act no differently from our culture, why would people who are not believers see us any differently? Which brings us to mission. People become Christians through hearing the good news about Jesus. But in a pain-pleasure context, we also need to demonstrate it. So let's ask ourselves, in a world where people are driven by uh, a pain-pleasure worldview, how can we speak and act in ways that are gently 
that gently challenges and winsomely disrupts this worldview. How do we do that? Now, I'm sure all of us have stories of God at work through us. Before going overseas, I saw the same dentist for 25 years. He was a great guy, except for the fact he followed Essendon. His wife was the receptionist, and we got on really well. We got to know each other really well over the years. We talked about all kinds of things. But she'd regularly say throughout the years things like this, as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. She said it on many occasions. And I thought about this as the time went by. And on one occasion, I said to her, it's nice to be happy. But is that all that matters? Now, from there, she opened up about her fears and her concerns. She got real. The facade dropped. I said, you know, there's a very famous Christian, a guy called C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of him, who said, fear, pain and suffering is the megaphone of God crying out to us. Is it possible, just possible, that God may actually be at work in and through some of that hard stuff? The pain, the fears, the uncertainty. And that in and through that, that may be the path to real growth and to a better understanding of what the flourishing life looks like. A gentle question is what was required for a real conversation to be had. Now, when I was in Switzerland, I had a friend who I got to know quite well whose identity was tied up in making money and he asked what the Bible said about such things on one occasion. And I said, great. And I told him the story of the rich fool from Luke's Gospel. (laughs) He shed one or two tears as I chatted about the danger of taking good things and turning them into God things, which is a bad thing. We talked about all the good things God has given us which should never be a substitute for God. And I suggested that ultimately we should spend our lives trusting in something that's bigger and better than ourselves. That we should spend our lives aligning ourselves with the Lord Jesus and his priorities. What was I doing? I was gently and I hope winsomely trying to disrupt his pleasure, pain, worldview. Gently opening up the possibility that life is about trusting in something bigger than ourselves. Don't know about you, I love J.R. Tolkien. He's just the best. I think uh, for me it's a different experience than reading Harry Potter. Apologies to those who are into Harry Potter. And I love that scene in The Lord of the Rings where Bilbo is captured by the Ring of Power. Do you know what I'm referring to? Right at the start. He's invested his identity in it and he's controlled by it. It's consuming him. He accuses Gandalf of wanting to steal it, wanting to take the ring for himself. 
And Gandalf says, I think winsomely and in love, he says this, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. Friends, for many who are controlled by a pleasure-pain worldview, God must seem like a cosmic killjoy, trying to rob and harm people by depriving them of pleasure. Through our words, through our deeds, the challenge for us is to show people the gospel is a better story than the pain-pleasure alternative. That God is not trying to rob them, but introduce them through Jesus to what the good and flourishing life looks like. It ultimately affirms many of the good gifts that God has given us. But, ultimately, it's better than health, it's better than wealth, and it's better than happiness because it involves trusting and placing our identity in something that has a sure future, trusting and placing our identity in something bigger than ourselves. Now, the sky's the limit in how this might look, but it comes at a cost. Why? Because it's hard work making new friends and cultivating close friendship. And from my experience, as I get older, it only gets harder. I'll need to stop very quickly. Ask yourself a disturbing question. When was the last time you made a new and close friend? Christian or non-Christian? When was the last time? What would it mean as we think about our daily life to model through our choices and actions and attitudes and relationships an active trust in something that's bigger than this pleasure-pain worldview? So as we think about the people God has placed in our lives, the God who puts people in front of us, let's listen well, let's love practically, And as they share their story, let's see how God's big story, this story about trusting in something bigger than ourselves, connects with their story. That's the challenge, and that's the privilege. Amen.
your work in Tajikistan. Thank you for the Bible translations that are, that are there in, in the Tajik language. And I pray that you would help those that are working on updating that translation. Thank you for your work through Christian radio that reaches out to many people. And I pray that you would bless those that are trying to distribute and bring in Bibles and Christian literature into that country. And Father, we pray in Kazakhstan that you would keep doors open for missionaries, even despite the suspicion of the government there. And I thank you for the way that you provide for an Australian missionary family there, and you provided visas for them to be able to continue working in Kazakhstan. Lord, would you help your people there not to be intimidated, but to continue to remain faithful to you. Help them to remember that they trust in you and you are bigger than that situation. And we pray for Estonia.